Welcome to Paths Less Trodden Interviews with me, Daniel Ross. This is a series of interviews about Paths Less Trodden, discussions with free and contrarian thinkers who have fulfilled their ambitions where others have feared to tread. I'm interviewing entrepreneurs, investors, writers, creators, adventurers and anyone who's carving out the future a little differently. Paths Less Trodden is brought to you by Tsepo, one of South Africa's most exciting and sought-after fashion brands. Tsepo Molala's story, values and life philosophy are a perfect match for everything that I'm striving to show in this podcast series. From the most humble beginnings, Tsepo, meaning hope, the self-taught stylist and designer, has built his business from the ground up and is recognised as one of South Africa's hippest denim brands. He is a born fighter and entrepreneur of the best kind. Follow his rise to international stardom on Twitter and Instagram at Seppo Jeans in both cases that's spelled T-S-H-E-P-O. Follow the celebrities and tastemakers who love him by checking out the presidential slim fit jeans at seppo.shop. Today my guest is Jack Butcher. Jack is at the forefront of the online creator economy with his business Visualize Value, a design and consulting company based in New York. He's a graphic designer by trade, having spent a decade working in Fortune 100 advertising in New York as a creative director for multi-billion dollar brands like Mercedes-Benz, McDonald's and Unilever. In his words, fun, but the opposite of freedom. In search of freedom, he started his own advertising agency. No fun, and even less freedom. So Jack transitioned his traditional agency model into a product business that scales infinitely. That is Visualize Value a business which now turns over over $100,000 a month with 99% profit margin. Not too bad. In this episode, we discuss how far the creator economy can go and its impact on traditional business models, Jack's journey from Swindon to buzzing Manhattan, his design principles, scaling a business in two years, his love of racing cars, the crypto opportunity, and lots besides. I really hope you enjoy it. If you do please press the subscribe button on Apple or follow in Spotify. You can also subscribe to my newsletter where you can find these recordings, the written transcripts and other pieces. That's at danielsjross.substack.com. Jack, welcome to Paths Less Trodden. It's great to have you along today. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I appreciate it. Pleasure. I was really keen to have you on the show because building my own ventures. I'm fascinated by uh, the rapidly democratizing power of the internet to unleash creativity and influence beyond the conventional construct of the large organization and ubiquitous brands. Now, individuals have all the publishing tools and social media platforms at their fingertips to create their own content and develop an individual voice. So solopreneurs can have a following of 100,000 people and just themselves be the CEO of Me, Inc., the COO and the CMO all at the same time. So before sharing your story, I just wanted to dive into that subject immediately. Is there, in your opinion, any limits to how far this trend can go? I don't think so. I think there will be examples of it at ridiculous scale. Um, but that said, I think the you know, with every day that passes, it gets more and more difficult to sort of rise above the power law effect that is happening here. So there's a great Naval quote said, technology democratizes production, but consolidates consumption. So if you're the best in the world at anything, you get to do it for everyone. So in the same way that I think we see monopolies emerging in corporate world and traditional business, if you want to call it that, I think we'll see a similar effect, or we already are seeing a similar effect take hold where because these conversations and these brands are being built on platforms that are so efficient at directing attention you really see power laws play out there but as for your question of like how far it can go i think it can get absolutely insane and it already is you know in a lot of cases the the single person brand i think in the youtube world you got the mr beasts the jake pauls the there's a lot of people in entertainment doing that and have been doing that for a long time and now we're seeing that kind of creep into the more maybe the more dull or the more like uh, strictly business world, right? Where you have individuals that are running 
enterprises that might not be pop culturally relevant but can still get pretty huge with one person running them so for, for example businesses like yours visualize value do they or does it threaten the fabric of the traditional creative agency model or or equally one might ask to what extent do newsletter producers challenge the new york times and its fraternity yeah it's a good question i think i haven't been inside an agency environment in such a long time so I really do believe in this idea of technology kind of eroding the middle in each case. So you're going to have standout winners on the on the side that that has scale, so and, and has built in distribution, so New York Times, etc. And some of these ideas, I think the New York Times will will maybe start to pivot towards like putting firepower behind individuals that represent the New York Times, right? There's this sort of tension between the individual and the brand name and who is it that somebody is going to read and most of our experience of content now is in the social networks i think we think a lot more about who is writing this thing and what their worldview is and what they're about versus what brand represents them necessarily so that to me there's an interesting tension there like as a writer I think people have have talked about this specifically as it pertains to Substack like economically speaking when does it make sense to you to switch from a New York Times to a Substack and that's obviously not the only factor that you would consider as a journalist like some people want to work for an establishment like the New York Times but I think the the sort of fracturing of attention towards individuals businesses that embrace that idea i think will hang on longer or like out innovate businesses that don't that's my guess yeah i wonder particularly in your old agency world whether there will be brands as in clients who will always demand the comfort blanket of mass labor uh, working on their projects followed by the com- arguable comfort of a of a big bill following it rather than have right. the confidence to do something a little more edgy yeah and i think even in that context the way they execute campaigns will be and this has been true for a long time but it's just getting easier they have individuals represent the brand so like the idea of influencer campaigns and even if you think about with your background money management and investing and venture firms a lot of people have started to discuss this topic where you're going after a cap table of investors that have brand names themselves that can reach your intended audience or people that can use your product you're much better off filling your cap table with 12 people that have 100,000 Twitter followers than one venture firm that can't reach any of the people that would be using your product when it goes to market so i think it's shaken up a lot of different industries and it's all downstream i think of this idea of social capital and social media and over the last year everybody's identity kind of maybe you could have debated at the beginning of 2020 that your identity is kind of 50-50 physical digital maybe even more physical than digital cuz you're going into the office and you're outside all the time and then with what happened last year you know i think most people had to reconfigure at least in you know the world we're talking about reconfigure their identity to be completely digital first and you get onto networks like twitter and you see what other people are doing and i think a lot of people see the writing on the wall and they're like i need to build a network of my own and not rely on a company that may be not thinking as far ahead as as some of these people who are the idea of anti-fragility i think is interesting here where you have a network of people regardless of whether you sell a product or provide a service or have a certain perspective on things the ability to build a network of people that trust you to do that i think is a solid strategy given the pace at which the world is is changing picking up on 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 the investment theme i read a tweet by patrick o'shaughnessy just before we started this interview which posed the question when do you think that we will see the entirety of a large investment round taken up by individuals by users by customers uh, surely that can't be too far off i mean that's a very interesting thought clearly crowdfunding rules in the us have enabled far bigger rounds to have individual participants but the idea that 
individual VCs uh, outside of the large firms can start to play a far more significant role, I think, plays to the theme that we're discussing. Yeah, there's a uh, there's one example, and maybe I, I may be misquoting this, but have you heard of Synthesis School? Yes, the e- Elon Musk. Yeah, so that is a private company now, and I believe that they've first round of funding was all individuals or rolling funds led by individuals that had distribution on a smaller scale i think is happening and obviously you know that behavior traditionally trickles up like the the things that work and the things that operate with less friction if that thesis plays out and this is i think another interesting idea is that typically you would take money from investors in a lot of these businesses in order to buy exposure for the startup. So maybe it's a lot of that capital you would raise would be a marketing expense. But what you've done, if you fill your cap table with investors that have distribution, you've taken that cost down to zero and you've aligned your incentives between you and the investor. Like the investor is not going to charge you to, to put the message out there. I don't know of anybody that does that, but it would be a little silly, right? If you have skin in the game, you're incentivized to promote the business you've invested in and explain it to your network. And that is, a, I think, a fundamental shift in one, how much money you actually need to raise if you get the right people. And the competition for capital becomes about the brand of the people that are, are able to essentially bring attention to your venture post-investment. Yeah, and we're seeing lots of good examples of that now, whether it's syndicates like Packy McCormick or Sean Puri, who are leading the charge exactly uh, in, exactly in, in yeah Packy is a, a perfect example yeah exactly let's take a step back because we've mentioned uh, your business uh, visualized value so we should set a little context it seems unreasonable to say your story really started when you arrived in new york 11 years ago because we casually wipe out over 20 years of your life but for the purposes of this conversation it is an obvious springboard moment but if i may take a minus one step on the time axis you studied graphics and design at university, and you've spent really all your career thus far focused on it. I wanted to know, were drawing, making, creating things, hobbies you enjoyed growing up, or where did the bug come from? Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, it wasn't like I was not an artistic kid by any means. I don't think art wasn't a subject I was particularly interested in at school. I did do a graphic design class, I think at GCSEs, when you get to select the four or five subjects that you you do I did graphic design then I think one of the one of the watershed moments was uh when you're 16 in the UK as you probably know you do work experience and the school gives you a list of essentially these are the positions that they've secured as a school and you can be randomly assigned or you can pick one from this list or you can go out and try and organize your own placement and my cousin at the time worked for a graphic design firm in Nottingham. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting to you know, go and basically get to play on the computer all day and work as opposed to, you know, go and working in a supermarket or a garage or whatever else was on the list that was immediately available to me. So reached out to his boss, like, oh, can I come on and stay up there and do that for a week? And I think whether or not that was something that was innately interesting to me or not, I don't know. But I definitely, I think that was the bug of like, oh, you can actually make a living playing around and you know sitting in front of a computer all day that wasn't obvious to me my mom was a nurse my dad's an engineer so not a artistic household but I think a creative household in a lot of ways like my dad's always building stuff and maybe there's maybe there's something there and then actually reversed course after that so had the thought that I graphic design is cool but you know I'm gonna be there's not an amazing career trajectory associated with it so I actually studied computer programming after that was horrible at it but scraped through and then thought oh I'm just gonna go and get a job so I didn't have had no aspirations of higher education that was 16 to 18 a b-tech if you're familiar with that like a vocational uh, local college and then after that I actually went to work at Honda in Swindon on the production line and obviously a brutal job amazing amazing experience but you're you're standing on the production line building 400 cars a day with whatever your specific process is in the middle of that and then i had all my friends had gone to university at that point i was at home in swindon 
and I do like the weekend visits to university and I was like, man, these guys are having a much better time than I am right now. I sort of, I guess I recalled the graphic design experience I had when I was 16 and I was like, oh, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's such thing as like going to university to learn graphic design. Obviously there was between shifts actually at Honda, I would get home at two in the morning or whatever it was, got on the family computer and like messing around in Photoshop and stuff. The entry requirements for a graphic design degree was that you had to do an art. Typically, they only accept you if you've done like a, an art foundation, I think it's called. So that course I did in computer programming, all my peers at university would have been studying art at that time. But I applied anyway, got rejected by all every school but one. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go and do it. And then uh, I think I, I kind of had the bug for it but also i was like i'm here now and i'm gonna spend a ton of money learning this so i'm just gonna knuckle down and do it and then i think through that process it wasn't like i grew up wanting to be a graphic designer but when you start to solve problems and get feedback for solving problems i think that's the thing that i got addicted is maybe a strong word but that's where the the drive came from early on and then in 2010 you came to new york on something of a whim Give us a whistle-stop tour of what happened next and then what brought about Visualize Value. Sure. So the New York thing, I was coming out with some friends for a vacation and they were like planning to work in the pub or whatever, no professional aspirations. I sent a bunch of emails. I was like, while I'm out here, I may as well, you know, try and meet some people that work in graphic design. Again, 100 emails, one response. The guy I met ran a little agency in West Chelsea and he's like, I'll give you a shot. We'll get the visa stuff sorted out. Let's do it. That was maybe the most formative experience. Two years like apprenticing under this guy that worked at J. Walter Thompson for 20 years, wrote the HSBC World's Local Bank campaign. So advertising royalty. And then I bounced around seven, eight agencies after that in New York. 2017 started my own agency thinking arrogantly oh, I can do this better than all of the you know, agencies that I've been involved in I I've seen the I've seen the invoice and I know I'm doing 80% of the work so I can capture you know x percent more of the value if I go out and do it on my own obviously arrogant assumption that didn't take into account like everything that goes into that which is basically hand-holding clients and setting up meetings and all of that stuff I was just the creative piece of the equation did that for nine months burned out massively like won some fortune 500 clients and it, it's basically a fork in the road so it's like you want to grow this you want to go and get an office in manhattan or wherever and staff it up with half a dozen people and try and compete with these massive agencies that can bleed money for a year two years just to get a client on their books so it's like mm, this is not not the direction i want to go in so then just sort of narrowed the agency's focus down to visualizing value, which is almost a was well, a process of elimination. I would use I would build these pitch decks to win work, and then I'd be more proud of the pitch deck than the work. And that's a pretty typical that's a pretty typical scenario in in my experience across the whole ten years I was working because it's designed by committee after that point and all of that good stuff. So just reposition the agency to make the like the explanation the deliverable. So. I had a small network of entrepreneurial friends that needed help explaining what they did. So I would build these like graphic sequences that told us the story of their business or explain the value proposition of their business. And they'd use it in sales material or they stick it on social media or they use it on their website. It's like, hang on, this is, this is much better. I can you know, deliver something that's pretty unique and I can really explain what I do succinctly. So I then started posting these these graphics to social media as a lead magnet for new clients so all of the work you see now on visualized value that began as just an effort to find people that owned service businesses or software companies that are like oh that looks cool can you do that for me at a certain point i just got to the stage where i couldn't fulfill all the work by hand because the network effect of the internet as we began to talk about at the beginning of this conversation brought too much work to the door to fulfill time and materials so then i was like okay let's think about how to productize this and remove me as being the the barrier to how many people this business can serve we can go in a lot of different directions from that point but that's the the crib notes great start so 
it's and it's fair to say that a great inspiration behind your business philosophy and design is someone who you've already mentioned, which is Naval Ravikant. And Naval, for those who don't know, is considered something of a Silicon Valley legend, right? He's an entrepreneur. He founded AngelList, amongst others. He's an investor. He's a philosopher. And he's best known for a tweet storm of 2018 titled How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky, which again, just for brief explanation, it's a series of epithets on topics like wealth, status, knowledge, career leverage. But he also says something which is, I think, particularly relevant to what you do. He says, you're not going to get rich renting out your time, uh, which is obviously advice you've heeded well. But I wanted to understand how to build on what you've just explained about the origins of VV. How did Naval's words cross your path and why did they have such an impact on you? Yeah, it's a great question. I've tried to recall this with the most accuracy I can. And there's still some ambiguity around how I ended up on Twitter because I wasn't a I wasn't a Twitter user at all. And I think just one day I was trying to grow my business on Facebook and LinkedIn. And the nature of those networks is very different than Twitter. It's you build these connections personally, and it circulates within the people that you've you've met at work or you've met like you went to school with things of that nature. So I think one day I was just clicking around Twitter. Man, I have to think about how I how I came to to stumble across it. But when I did, I was at this stage of my professional development when I was just running into so many walls like this is where I was in between in between the like agency that does anything for any anyone and like making a decision to really specialize as you mentioned people who have been immersed in the technology space and building products that have to achieve network effect to succeed have a different mental model of the world and I, I didn't understand it at all. Like it wasn't even remotely obvious to me. A lot of the ideas in that in that sequence of in that tweet storm pairing some of those. I'm actually grateful for the fact that I was oblivious to it for so long because you kind of say stay distracted long enough to build a skill set or something that is that has almost no leverage whatsoever that you can then take this model and apply it on top. Not to get too off topic, if I'd have discovered that early on in my career, I just would have been sort of spinning wheels looking for leverage as opposed to applying leverage to something that I've already built up. And there's, there'd been this amount of time that I'd sunk into this skill and been exposed to all these different businesses through the agency world. And it was just kind of a serendipitous, like, okay, let's take some of these ideas and apply them on top. But yeah, I could really probably look at every single tweet in that tweet storm and tie it back to a a decision or a you know a pivot in the business that took it from this really really difficult to run agency business to having a lot more time to think and and just make adjustments and decisions that last for a lot longer alongside all that tell us a little about your the visual style that you developed in visualize value firstly what is it for those who mm-hmm. are unfamiliar and how did you develop it it's extremely minimal which i think has been my design persuasion since day 1 i met my couple of my teachers at university would always tell me like you need to be able to change your style for the clients you work for right we know that this is your work it's too it looks the same every time regardless of the the exercise you're applying it against and i that was delivered as a critique back then throughout my agency world it was like I got further and further away from that where I'd be like, it doesn't make sense to work on this brand. Like aesthetically speaking, I can't, you know, work on soap brand X, for example. So I'd get technology products, financial products, things of that nature. The aesthetic itself is only made up of geometric shapes and the same typeface. It's a black background with white, super high contrast. There's a couple of, this, these may have been applied in retrospect now, but a couple of ideas that now sort of marry with uh, why that's worked. The first, I think, is Tim Ferriss's, who said, make one decision to save you a thousand decisions. So if you've made, if you're a designer and you've made, like you've put that constraint on yourself, 
You don't spend four hours choosing colors, styles, typefaces, all of these things. You Your creative energy is put into conveying the idea rather than like noodling around with stylistic changes. So that I think is, that definitely helps the growth of the business too, because you have this visual equity in, idea, in an idea, which is something that I've learned by sort of osmosis in an agency environment, right? You mentioned before we started recording that you worked for Vodafone. The idea that red and white is a Vodafone thing, right? If you're driving past a sign on the M25 and you'd see like maybe even the typeface and the color, you know it's Vodafone. So I think there's a bit of the agency conditioning and working in follow the brand guidelines. The brand police are coming for you. That is an in, it's an, there's an interesting contrast there because creative people are like, I want to do my own thing or I want to, I feel like constrained to a fault by these guidelines but i realized over time that that's actually an environment that gives you some creative energy because you're not spinning your wheels forever thinking about different ways to execute visually the economist is one of my favorite examples of this too red and white same typeface maybe they use visuals now and again but the ideas are so profoundly sharp because they are following this system and they're building this equity in that visual system so it's like oh it's an economist out i know it's going to be smart before i even read it i think part accident and part you could call it laziness but it has this compounding effect of you don't even need to present it in the context of the name anymore. Like if somebody takes an image from Visualize Value and posts it on a different network without credit, nine times out of 10, somebody will tag me underneath it and say, this is X, which is proof of concept that that works. But there's a counterintuitive innovation principle around putting constraints around idea generation. It's counterintuitive because more often people believe that you want to chuck a lot of seeds in the air and let the flowers flourish. But more often than right. not, that causes confusion. Actually, you're better off enabling creativity by putting some rules in the rules of the road in place. I think it's the same idea ultimately. A hundred percent. Going deeper into, into visualized value, so as I understand it, and you've touched on this, it's focused really on two major presets. One is about using design to communicate meaningfully and simply. I think that's easier said than done. We just touched on that. And the second part is about packaging your expertise into digital products that work without you. In other words, that's about generating passive income. One thing that you've said before relating to that, in other words, the idea of focusing on a small number of things is that diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing. And I find this a challenging and thought-provoking because implicit in this is a requirement to say no. And mm -hmm. if you're a freelancer pitching and juggling projects, it's tough to say no. So what's the trick? Great question. I think none of this would have happened without running into walls. So it's really like a breaking point equation for me. And everybody that I've seen achieve a degree of breakout leverage went through that same journey of just bashing their head against the wall so many times. I tried a few different iterations of the agency model before arriving at Visualize Value, which could have been commercially successful and maybe were positioned, well, they were definitely positioned more specifically than just, hey, we're a creative agency. But I honestly did not enjoy or had no interest in the type of work. So I had some experience in recruiting and studied that world for a long time, worked at a startup there. So was like, oh, I could niche down into serving recruiters and helping them build digital presences, you know, websites, social podcasts. And then like three months in to that I'm, or trying to get that off the ground, just like, I don't care about recruiting. I'm not interested in this. I have to get out of it. The level of constraint that I stumbled into with Visualize Value is, and this is like, I hate to say this because it's, it is kind of cliche. It's like I had I wasn't try desperately trying to make it work, if that makes sense. It was a it was scratching a creative itch and putting something out there that started to catch people's attention. And I think that's again a, a counterintuitive thing, similar to the constraints creativity, is you have to think what people want in order to build something commercially viable versus leaning into the idea that there are more there are lots of people out there that appreciate the same things you do just by way of having access to four and a half billion people on the internet if you truly lean into the things that get you fired up and stick at them long enough then 
you're essentially building a network of people that either share your worldview or are interested in your worldview and it kind of grows out from there versus it's the it's a pull versus a push i think it's the when you find that thing that pulls you that's when it starts to get easier to say no to things even if there is a commercial trade-off that you're making because you're seth godin wrote a book called the dip have you have you read that i haven't Um, read that one essentially he's talking about the moment between you make that decision and then you start to get traction so you might just be you know shouting to an empty room for a period of time every like creative endeavor goes through this sequence of okay i'm saying no to a ton of stuff and you're gonna feel like a a dip emotionally and probably financially in that moment that's the kind of leap of faith that gets you to the other side another remark you made which i really love as a publisher myself and one which touches on the really tough grind of starting and building alone is even if nobody sees it you're still winning and what do you mean by that yeah so another layer to that last point is there's some selfish motivation to visualize value too so The idea that I had one client who I was helping with visualize how a supply chain 3PL, 4PL partner works to like deliver better service to big businesses that, you know, ship products internationally. So what I was doing to produce content to improve my skill set, I was uh, like making things to get the attention of people who needed that problem solved. So that act was making me a better designer i was thinking through more problems i was actively seeking out ideas that i think could be improved with a visual with some visual context added even if nobody saw that even if i had to like go and even if i had to go back into an agency environment after that for example i would have sharpened my design skill set to the point where i'm more competent more capable more effective that i think is a again the counterintuitive thing is this idea of being selfish in developing a skill set that you can wake up every day and get excited about then that becomes an asset to you regardless of whether this thing becomes a business that can scale to thousands of people or you remain a just a really specialized practitioner and that still makes you a more viable market participant not to get too cold and capitalistic about it but that's how it works right if we're, we're doing this in service of of making a better living all of those like selfish pursuits and the body of work that you build that you can show in these smaller interactions so design as a trade is so much less reliant on credentials than a lot of other jobs and i think this is another accidental realization the only time i've ever been hired is because or the only reason i've ever been hired is because of my portfolio nothing else really matters in a obviously you you don't want to work with someone who's you have to pass the certain personality tests i'm sure and and fit within a team but ultimately what matters is how how good your design work is if you're going to be staffed to a design team other trades you're kind of taking a guess on someone right you're having a conversation with them they maybe have rehearsed what to say in interviews and but in design i've interviewed hundreds of designers over the years they open the portfolio or fire up an ipad and then within 15 seconds you know this person is gonna help us build better product or not that idea I think people think too much about social media and like exposure and I need to get this many people to see it versus a literal sequence of proof of work. There are people out there writing blog posts, for example, that have maybe been read by five people each. But if they walked into a job interview for a publication that has distribution and said, hey, here's here's what I write. Maybe they're just terrible at getting attention on the internet, but their writing is amazing. There's a benefit to them having done that, right? Just the act of publishing and accruing this proof of work is going to serve them down the road. And I think the accrual of that work has to give one some kind of personal pleasure and kick. Because without that, you know, the rewards just can't follow. I think we've probably all had experiences of life and there's something a little karmic about it that your primary motivation has to be because for something to do with some kind of self-improvement or some kind of value that you create for yourself, even if it's just about learning something. And then the, the, the rest naturally follows. Yeah. And I would just say like the... There's another, I think that's in the Naval tweet storm is like the internet has massively broadened the scope of possible careers. And most people haven't figured this out yet. So if you've been in a commercial environment for 20 years, that 
you're doing something really specific, you probably can't imagine that you could make a living talking about stamps on the internet. Likely that that will be a long, long road. But there is a mentor of mine once told me, is like, there's no market on earth that you can't make a million dollars a year serving on the internet. And maybe hyperbole, but I think I sort of challenge myself to think through it. It's like, yeah, probably, you know, if you're focused enough, I think that's probably true. The internet is the place to find those niches. Indeed. Um, I want to touch on your flagship online course, which is called Visualize Value. If it's about adding visual context to an idea to create meaningful visual communication. Is there then a deliberate and repeatable mental process to help you translate a verbal articulation into a simple visual design? Or is it ultimately instinctual and experience allowing ideas to pop into your head? I think there's definitely a combination. So within the curriculum, what I try and unpack is there's a, a logic to language and there are things that you can look for in statements that have inherent visual qualities to them. So people make comparisons in ideas or there's contrast in a sentence or there's sequence in the way something is explained. As you read a sentence, you're not looking for the visual side of it. Visual context is my favorite way to explain this, where you're not trying to, you're not trying to necessarily better explain something you're trying to give someone a almost a visual shortcut for that idea so they start to map the idea to a visual and i think i'm not a biologist but the speed at which your brain can recognize a visual or recall a visual is 10 20 30 times more effective than you trying to recall a sentence and the sequence in which those words were said. What's been helpful for me is, is getting feedback from people that are like, oh, I, I had this, I've read that sentence before, I've read that statement before, and it never really stuck with me. It wasn't that profound. And then when I saw it articulated visually, it really stuck with me. And now I have this shortcut, this very simple visual model to remind me of that idea over and over again, in the same way that like an acronym can carry, like you can compress, you can compress press an idea and just move more information with less or move more meaning with less information i should say that's the aspiration of all of these graphics is to create to give these ideas more velocity so you can recall them faster they can travel further it's a constant experiment too some of them some ideas are so profound that maybe you you don't need a visual but there are a lot of ideas out there that just underserved right un poorly packaged they're not they're just not sexy enough for people to pay attention to a lot of the time so they're there is like an arbitrage opportunity in making an idea look nicer in the same way that people put water in an Evian bottle and charge you extra. I like to think we're in a different game than that. But you know, that's a brutal comparison to make is the branding of information and the the story you can layer on top of something that changes the way people value it. Understood. And and with your online courses, you know, you're generating $100,000 plus a month, almost passively. So if that's the case, Apart from your prodigious Twitter output and childcare, how do you spend your time? So one thing I would say, like I would replace passive with le with leveraged passive income with leveraged income. So the idea that there are things that I definitely could be doing that could lock in more of a passive floor. So there are things that I'm not great at that I'm trying to work on like SEO, publishing articles that capture intent from something like a Google search and drive people to revisualizedvalue.com versus 80% of our traffic being generated from my Twitter feed or I'm trying to scale up some LinkedIn stuff at the moment. There's definitely a like spend 10 minutes thinking of an idea and it can have no two 10 minutes uh, are going to generate the same result, right? Because you have the you have the product on the back end and you're essentially just figuring out better ways to explain it and better ways to introduce these ideas to people. And then everything on the back end is built and taken care of. You have some customer service stuff, obviously, but that gets easier and easier with essentially addressing the questions that you have at a software or a media level so you don't get the same question again. Man, it's, it, it's kind of an overwhelming, all-consuming thing. Thing. So I'm, I can't get away from thinking about a better way to explain it or a new way in which to frame up these ideas. You do get more free time, but ironically, it's an all-consuming thing. I'm a car enthusiast. I guess that would be maybe my, my biggest hobby outside of it. And it's another 
the idea of being behind the wheel of a car you can't be on your phone or your computer or reading a book or whatever else so that's like a, a nice little zen yeah that's you know pretty simple man life is pretty simple we just had a baby do a walk around the neighborhood a couple of times a day trying to think of the next thing and i think thinking too far out into the future is a, a bit of a problem of mine as well so i'm i'm deep down the crypto rabbit hole at the moment there's probably a lot more legs in sticking with the visualized values so there's a lot more people in that world that need some of the the product that we're producing for visualized value more so than the crypto speculation but it's a lot of fun well, th carving out thinking time in one's day, in one's week is critical. That's a whole other subject, something I think about a lot as well. We'll come to crypto in a moment because it leads nicely into future trends broadly around the creator economy. So we'll come back to that thought on crypto because we started by discussing whether the creator economy has any limits. And I wanted to just dive into that subject a little further because as the creator economy grows as access to global communities grows. In fact, I think more than 50 million people around the world now would consider themselves creators. Is it a problem that many creator-focused platforms or monetization mechanisms reward very few? Is that just the nature of free markets and that cream will rise to the top? I'm getting more and more interested in this conversation because creator is, is such a interesting word. Like Jay-Z is a creator, right? And a lot of these platforms that think about or talk about creators are maybe thinking about it at a different scale. It's incredibly difficult to keep people's attention for a long, long time. My recommended approach is like this hybrid model where you do have this element of leveraged product and you can build assets that are kind of working around the clock without you. But I see the most anti-fragile approach is to be able to provide this specialist service as well until reaching that critical mass so it's like this freelancer doesn't have a great connotation either because it's like i'll kind of do anything and it's burnout is implied in the world of freelancing and creator to me is if you build it they will come connotation which i don't think is particularly healthy either I think this idea of being a hyper-specialized practitioner, leveraging some of these tools and platforms that are allowing you to build a network around that specialized practice is the in-between step, at least, until you get to the... Attention is a finite resource too, right? I think that's another... How many Substack newsletters can one person pay for, for example? Or how many YouTube channels is somebody going to pay a premium to subscribe to beyond uh, what they would pay for? cable tv subscription or something so i think the economics of it like i can't wrap my head around how far that can go and how many people that can support or whether or not an amazon or a netflix or whoever else will just absorb that cost somehow but to get to the scale to make a living i think there's a really huge gap between what a lot of people talk about in terms of the scale you need to hit critical mass on the income side, I think is a lot bigger than a lot of people think it is. What I try to teach in Build Once, Sell Twice, which is about the specialized knowledge component, is have an element of your, if you want to operate independently, you have an element of your business that is you're a practitioner slash consultant and you provide highly specialized advice or you execute highly specialized tasks. Then you have tiers of products beyond that for people who maybe don't want to spend X amount and they can go and instill that skill set within their organization. Yes, it's to be completely frank, I'm really curious how it's going to play out over the next few years, because even in the two years that I've been in the space and the switch from COVID, everyone at home on their computer, this is the future to waning back out of that a little bit. The environment has changed in such a short time as well. Your strapline is, of course, signal in a world of noise. And as you say, on the one hand, it's never been easier to reach a, a huge audience. On the other, it's extremely hard to cut through the noise. Attention spans are getting shorter. There's this subscription fatigue. It occurred to yep. me to ask then, as you plan ahead, or to the extent that you do plan ahead, do you envisage increased project collaboration amongst fellow creators to generate economies of scale and then share revenue? Definitely. And I think this thesis of everyone as an investor is going to come to fruition pretty quickly as well, where you're kind of creating value in your own niche or in your own very specialized way. And then you're spreading your risk by reinvesting the capital you create into businesses that have more of a moat 
than you do. But I do, I do think on one side, you have these mega monopolies. So you either go and work for Amazon, Uber, Google, whatever else. You're essentially an asset to those platforms on the other end of the spectrum, right? You're where you're like the mega individual creator and this is like maybe dystopian and years and years out but as the trends start to take hold that's how i see it happening where you have to create such an incredible network depending on the price of the product you sell right if you need a thousand customers a year for whatever your product is even at a two percent conversion rate you need 50,000 people looking at your stuff every day, which is significant amount of people and the speed at which everybody else is figuring this out. Platforms are putting money into different things. It's fascinating. And I think our products will, I mean, my ambition is to evolve into almost use the platform that we've built to bridge that gap a little bit. So whether it's a, a better way to showcase what you're capable of and connect you to people that need that talent, because I think tapping into networks that can deliver you opportunity, that is the, the next step from a Twitter where you're soliciting to strangers to I am part of Collective X, to your point, people have banded together to create more value, economy of scale, and even align under a brand that has distribution network of it's just this fascinating trend of bundling, unbundling, bundling, unbundling. I, I don't know who came up with that, but that's basically the only two ways to create value, right? You put stuff together or you take it apart. And as an economy, that's just what we keep doing over and over and over again. Absolutely. It's cyclical. Certainly from my experience in financial services, it's unbundling, rebundling, and, yeah, and, right. and the cycle continues, right? But just coming back to crypto, and I'm trying not to shoehorn this in, but since you mentioned it, it seems to me that one of the obvious intersections of creators and crypto is the explosion of NFTs, non-fungible uh -huh. tokens. That's an interesting case in point. And I should add, let's maybe just do a quick definition and I'll, I'll maybe I'll start, you can, you can add to it or correct me, but an, a non-fungible token, it's a unique digital asset asset that can't be replaced with something else. So for example, if you have a $1 bill or even a Bitcoin, those are fungible. You could trade one for another dollar bill or another Bitcoin. You have exactly the same thing. But if you have, say, a one-of-a-kind trading card, however, that's non-fungible, whether that's digital or otherwise. If you traded it for a different card, you have something completely different. Is that is that a fair definition? Yeah, that's of, great. Of, I think of it's NFT? a great explanation. Um, but NFT yep. is something that you've dabbled in. But my question is, is that I, I would presume that if an artist, a conventional artist, let's say, sees that an NFT can sell for $10 million, they might see this as their gateway to financial freedom. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. Yeah, I think NFTs are far more valuable to people who have built and can continue to build digital networks. So you'll see like these artists and celebrities come into the space and drop some cash grabbing project. But in the same way that you would buy a share of Amazon, you're only buying that share because you believe that Amazon is going to keep innovating and keep, keep driving down the cost of delivering consumer goods to households across the world. And that's where tokens, I think, come in to it where you're yes you have ownership of this thing but you're also sort of entering into this long-term social contract with the creator that their work's going to be worth x amount more in 20 30 40 years and in some cases for traditional artists maybe that makes sense just because they have a huge huge cultural relevance but where the where the real money is being traded in nfts is either digitally native artists that are going to grow the space or projects that leverage the very specific medium of tokenization. So the trading card example that you used, a project that has 10,000 unique pieces of artwork, avatars, whatever it might be, that supply is never going up. And this community is it's the first of its kind. And people who got into this space early want to support it. Those things to me feel like the applications of NFT technology that will that have a, a greater chance of standing the test of time, I should say. Got it. We could go into these topics into far greater detail, but I'm conscious of time and I want to find a few minutes before we close with a quick fire round, which I just remembered that I didn't actually make you aware of this at the start. That's so fine. I hope you don't mind. It's quite light and frivolous, so uh, you don't need to overthink it. Right, um, I'm going to throw a few questions at you and you can uh, respond with uh, the things that come to your head first. So what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? My first boss told me once that if I have 30 
30 seconds to answer this. I'm going to go into a little bit of detail. So I was going to present some work to my first boss. I'm maybe six months onto the job. I was walking up to this. We're a tiny office in West Chelsea. I'm walking up to a table. Before I start, I just want to let you know that it's not quite there. It's not quite good enough. He's like, well, I'm going to stop you there. If it's not good enough, why are you showing me? I was like, he's probably forgotten that he said that a long time ago. But I think this idea of like macro empathy, like early in my career, the guy... I worked with first was like, that's not good enough. We're not going to show that. Being tough in in a way that really helped me improve my craft consistently. It didn't even seem like an act of kindness at the time. But if I try and trace back like the things that have influenced my work the most, I think that would be up there. Cruel to be kind or something like that. Indeed. What's your most powerful memory? Oh man, my wedding day probably. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. This is the interesting thing about sharing your life on the internet every day. I'm trying to rack through the things that I've never <laughs> never talked about and there's not many of them left. Which book do you gift most regularly? There's a book called Psycho-Cybernetics by a guy called Maxwell Maltz. Have you heard of that book? I don't know it. That's Yeah, that's definitely the most regularly gifted book. And um, I don't know if I have a copy of it here. The Almanac of Naval which I did the illustrations in. So uh, I know a little personal plug there. And yes. Eric Georgensen, good friend of mine. Great. Uh, it's a great Who book. wrote it. Yeah, who put yep. it together rather. Indeed, indeed. What's your Desert Island music? Man, that's a hard one. I think I'm going to go with recency bias here. There's a UK hip hop artist called Dave. Just uh, He just released an album called We're All Alone in This Together. It's a masterpiece. So I'm taking that with me if I had to choose today. Great. You're the first person who's acknowledged uh, any aspect of behavioral economics in their answer, citing recency bias to quote your Desert <laughs> Island music. So I appreciate that. And the last one, winding down away from work, tell me about your hobbies. Strangely enough, like design is kind of bridges a gap between both. So like the application of the NFT stuff, the crypto world, like making art is it feels like a hobby unfortunately it's not away from the screen as much as i'd like it to be but beyond that try and get traveling as much as i can love to drive spend time with the family uh, nothing too crazy i i've been on the hunt for some analog hobby for a while but driving's as close as i've gotten so far i'll keep you posted if i think of anything else but man, it's, it's hard to get away from the computer screen all the most interesting things are happening on the internet too so uh, i've kind of embraced it at this point I can't really tell the difference between when I'm a hobbyist and uh, and I'm at work, which I guess is a good thing. Twitter is incredibly addictive, is perhaps yeah. the last thing I'm going to say. A hundred percent, my friend. Well, listen, let's pause there. Jack, thank you hugely for spending the last hour with me. I've enjoyed it immensely and uh, really appreciated all your thoughtful words. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a fun conversation. I appreciate it. Great pleasure. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. If you did, do me a favour and press the subscribe button on Apple or follow Paths Less Trodden in Spotify. The more of you who do that, the more great stories I can share with you. You can also subscribe to my newsletter where you can find these recordings, the written transcripts and other pieces. That's at danielsjross.substack.com. Till next time.